Let's pray together. No one ever spoke like this man. That's what they concluded about Jesus. James urges us not just to hear, but to do. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to this portion of your word today, that we would not just be coming to gather more information, but coming to see our lives transformed by the power of your Spirit. So allow your word to do its work in our hearts. Allow your Spirit to illuminate it to our understanding and apply it to our lives, that we might go from here touched and transformed by your word, better fit to serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we come to the end of our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been driving toward a conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, certainly since uh, verse 12 of uh, chapter 7. Uh, But this passage here is the conclusion that he has been driving toward. And it comes down to what we will do with this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And there are two things that we need to consider today, the sermon and the speaker. The Sermon on the Mount then leaves us with two great questions. What will you do with the sermon and what will you do with the speaker? So that forms the structure of our message for today. Let's unpack that. First, what will you do with the sermon? Verses 24 to 27. Everyone there who hears these words of mine, says Jesus, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with the Sermon on the Mount? How do you evaluate a sermon? What is it that causes you to say, that was a good one? Or that one, not so much. What is it that causes you uh, to evaluate one as good or bad? Someone came up to me in the early days of my preaching ministry and said, you know, your sermons have been really good lately. What, what do you do with that? <laughs> Thanks. I mean, that, that's what you call a left-handed compliment. You know, it's kind of like, did you used to be good looking? I'll bet you did. <laughs> In this day of superstar preachers who can readily be found online, we can apply some really dangerous criteria to what makes a good or bad sermon in our mind. Whether it's helpful illustrations or no illustrations. Whether it's uh, good jokes or memorable one-liners. Whether it's a feeling of conviction after we've heard it. Or a feeling of euphoria after we've heard it. We can easily evaluate sermons in terms of what 
we want to hear. And then when we do that, the danger is we will go out and collect preachers who say what we want to hear. And when that happens, watch out. Watch out. You're getting further and further away from the message itself. In fact, here's a test you can use. Next time you're talking about a speaker and the person you're talking to says, he was really good, ask what it was he said that made the difference. You might get a blank stare. Um, But he was really good. I I, I don't know, but he, he was really good. And then ask what they're going to do as a result of having heard him. Oh, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about that. But but he was really good. I'll tell you, he was good. You got to listen. He's really good. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 tells us, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's not about getting our ears tickled and hearing the things we want to hear the way we want to hear it. The critical question is what we're doing with what we've heard. That's the question Jesus leaves us with as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. In our passage today, as Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about two men who each want to make something out of their lives. Both of them want to build something good. But only one takes the time to dig a foundation. And in that action, you can tell who's wise and who's foolish. Now notice, both men heard what Jesus had to say. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, be like a wise man. Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like foolish man. Both men heard, but only one acted on what he heard. What you hear is important. Don't don't lose sight of that. What you hear is really important. What we choose to listen to is really important. What we allow into our mind through the gate of our ears is really important. We need to be selective in that. We need to be careful in that. But what we do with what we hear is absolutely essential. A wise person hears and does. A wise person hears and puts teaching into practice in his life. And in doing that, he's building a solid foundation for his life. The foolish one just hears, does nothing else, likes listening. He wants to gather up as much teaching as he can. The trouble is he's not doing anything with it. The parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus tells the story, same story, a little differently. Uh, Verse 48 of Luke 6 shows the wise man digging down deep for his foundation. Luke emphasizes that. The wise man digs down deep. For his foundation. The foolish man just builds. He's in too much of a hurry to see the building up. He doesn't take the time to lay a good foundation. 
And so a few observations occur to me as I look at this, and they're probably pretty obvious, but that's okay. Sometimes God really speaks through obvious things. But the, the first observation that, that I notice is that foundations take time and effort. If you're in a hurry to see your building completed, a foundation's just going to be a bother for you. It's, it's going to slow things down. It's, it's going to put you behind in your building plan. Can't we just start building? Why do we have to do any digging? Foundations take time and effort. Foolish people are always in a hurry. They want a quick fix. They have no time to wait. When I was playing Peewee League baseball, by the way, I never made it to the little leagues. I, my career ended in Peewee League. Uh, my coach had this motto that we heard all the time. It was this, get rid of the ball! <laughs> get rid of the ball! You know, I played third base. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, waiting for this, this slow grounder to come my way, and I hear, get rid of the ball! You know, and so I scoop it up, and I get rid of the ball, and I throw it into the dugout, you know, because I had to get rid of the ball. I heard this other coach huddling up his players and, and telling them, uh, you've got plenty of time, make a good throw. Guess which coach had the better record? You know, uh, he might have had some runners beat the throw to first, but that guy didn't have infielders throwing the ball into the dugout and giving up extra bases. Foolish people are always in a hurry. There's something to be said for taking your time and doing things right. And there's no comparison between a hurried Christian and one who takes his or her time to cultivate their relationship with the Lord. Time in the Word, time in prayer, those things provide a richness in your soul that will set you up well for the day that is coming, whatever it brings. Heard Christians don't have time for that. They're in a rush. They're in a hurry. They, they skip the time in the word and in prayer. They, they, they pray on the run. And so they're unsettled. They're attracted to the latest trend, like the Athenians uh, that that Luke tells us about in Acts chapter 17. Remember when Paul was invited to speak to these intellectuals, uh, the Areopagus on Mars Hill, and uh, it says there that these people were um, always interested in telling or hearing something new. They want something new. Just, just give me something new. Don't tell me what I learned yesterday. Give me something new. And, and literally, in, in the Greek, it's uh, they were interested in telling and learning what was newer. Newer. So not just new, but newer. Newer. I, I just want the latest. They're always chasing after the latest, flocking to the latest idea, the latest trend. I got to tell you, over 40 years in ministry, I have seen trends that people have flocked after. You could probably name a bunch of them yourself. Remember, seeker-driven ministries, 
Big trend. Every church had to, had to run that direction. Uh, do you remember um, the New Age movement? Oh, this is the biggest threat that's ever hit us. You've got to steel ourselves against that. Uh, remember the, the spiritual warfare trend that, that just gripped the church when Frank Peretti wrote his first novel. You know, all of a sudden, we're just seeing demons, you know, everywhere, and we're getting all bent out of shape, and then suddenly God is no longer on the throne. What's going on here? I mean, these, these trends just, just come, and they go, because they're trends, they're fads, they're, they're the latest. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. D.L. Moody said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's pretty good. People who chase after the latest trend end up being like the double-minded man in James chapter 1, verse 8. Unstable in all he does. There's no settledness. There's no permanence. He hasn't taken time to build a foundation. Foundations take time and effort. Second observation I would share is this. Foundations aren't obvious. They're not obvious. Does, you, does the foundation of your house show? Does the foundation of this church building show? They're, they're beneath the surface. They're, they're not obvious. And you can fool a lot of people by taking care only of the visible things in your life. Take prayer, for instance. Jesus talks a lot about prayer. It's important for your foundation. And it takes time and effort. And nobody knows. Skip it and you undermine your foundation. I heard a story about a ship leaving harbor on a cruise and it was delayed. Passengers were getting worked up because they're late getting off, and one passenger found out that the cruise ship was delayed because the rudder was malfunctioning. And they said, well, no one will ever see that. Let's get underway. We've all got limited time. But if you have flipped a coin between your personal quiet time and your involvement in a ministry of this church, and the ministry won because it's the thing that people see, I would suggest you need to get a look at your priorities. I'd rather see you quit that ministry role and get back on track with the foundational things that will build you up rather than to serve him from a faulty priority base. Third observation, foundations provide permanence. Foundations provide permanence. Rock is solid. It's permanent. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't shift. And sand is made up of particles. Little particles, little bits of this and that, fragments. People who build on sand have an eclectic approach to life. A little bit of Dr. Phil, a little bit of Oprah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Let's just kind of put it all together, see what happens. And it's sand. And as a result, it shifts. It changes over time. Have you noticed how much culture shifts over time? 
I ran into a guy yesterday who, as, as we were chatting, he, he had this cigar in his mouth. Uh, we, were, we found out that we were veterans and we started trading stories. And, and so we started talking about smoke and smoking. And, and I said, man, I, I remember those days in the Army. You couldn't get away from it. You know, it was everywhere. Everybody smoked. You know, you walk into a room, it's, it's all clouded with smoke. And, and now, I can, I can go days without seeing anybody smoking. I mean, what is acceptable has changed. That's in, in a good direction. Um, let me give another one, though, about some change that has taken place in our culture. A couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court announced the decision that they were overturning Roe versus Wade, the law on abortion. And, uh, oh, we are hearing it in the news today, right? This is not what the country wants. This is not what the majority wants. Do you know that in 1973, when Roe versus Wade came out, 70% of the country was against abortion? It shifted over time. Because sand does that. Particles, fragments shift. They're not solid. The sand of culture shifts. Solid rock remains. One final observation is this. Storms aren't optional. Did you notice? Both houses get pelted with the same thing. Storms aren't optional. Both the wise and the foolish builders experienced storms. You can't avoid turbulence in life. There are a lot of TV preachers who would like to convince you otherwise. They've made a personal fortune telling people that God wants them to be happy and healthy and wealthy. And it's not honest to say those things. It's not honest to say that when you come to Christ, your problems will be over. God doesn't promise us our best life now. We're going to experience storms. They're not optional. But we can stand strong when they come. And the key is the foundation we choose to build on. Jesus tells us we lay a good foundation when we hear these words of his and what? Do them. Do them. What's he asking us to do? Well, let's just take a quick look back at this amazing Sermon on the Mount that we've just been through. Jesus begins by asking us to consider our values as he opens the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. These are the most countercultural values you'll ever see. They're values of the kingdom. And Jesus congratulates the people this world sees as losers because they've got their values straight. So is your happiness based on what happens to you or on what can't be taken away? These values of the kingdom are not natural. They result from a heart that is changed in its basic orientation. Are you living by these values? Do they characterize your life? And next, then, Jesus asks us to consider our mission. He calls us to be salt and light. That's our mission. Salt is a preservative when fishermen would come in off the Sea of Galilee, they'd salt down their catch. Why? So that it wouldn't decay. That's what salt does. It's a preservative. And Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. 
We're here to preserve things. We need to infiltrate and, and make our influence known. He calls us light. And light draws attention to something. And Jesus says, let your light shine so that people will see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. So your light causes people to see you, but it reflects off of you to God. So are we making a difference in this decaying world? Are we allowing our light to shine so that people see God and want what we've got? And then Jesus calls us to live a radically different life, oriented toward the kingdom of heaven, holding loosely to the things of this world. And Jesus says if we're wise, we'll not only hear his words, but we'll do them. We'll, we'll put all of that into action. That'll come to characterize our life. Listen to his words and put them into practice. When we do that, we will have a real foundation for the storms of life because they're coming. We'll each have them. You may not know this, but a lot of the lakefront property in Chicago used to be part of Lake Michigan. Did you know that? A lot of the buildings you see on the lakefront, we couldn't afford a square foot of it, right? A lot of that was once Lake Michigan. And what they did was they built landfill out into Lake Michigan, layer upon layer, until they had land there. And so they built Field Museum, Museum of Science and Industry, Shedd Aquarium, Adler Planetarium, on reclaimed land. One of the buildings that's built on this reclaimed land is the Willis Tower that was, when it was built, called the Sears Tower. 110 stories tall, 1,450 feet tall. The top of it sways several feet when the wind hits it hard, and yet it stands. Built on landfill. What do you do with that? The secret to the building of that tower is that its builders used a pole construction, sinking poles hundreds of feet into the solid bedrock that lies beneath the landfill. Those poles rise up to form the structural supports of the building, and builders say there is virtually no limit to how high a building can go with that sort of foundation but it's all about the foundation. What would it take to have that kind of stability in our lives? Jesus tells us, hear and do. Hear and do. What will you do with this sermon? Not mine, but Jesus's. What will you do with that sermon? If we're wise, we'll put it into practice. We'll live by it. It's a Christian manifesto. It calls us to live a special kind of life in, in this dark and decaying world. It tells us how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. It's worth reading on a regular basis, being challenged by it to live a life under God's kingship. What we do with this sermon is vitally important. What will you do with this sermon? Next question is, what will you do with the speaker? Look at verses 28 and 29. 
And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. What will you do with this speaker? Crowds were astonished. He taught as one who had authority, not one who quoted authorities. And he had the audacity to say that if you hear these words of his and do them, you're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And if you hear his words but fail to do anything with them, you're like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Who says those things? What if I said that? You know, your life is, is going to be so much better if you just do what I say. You, you, you would say, you know, this guy needs to go, right? Search committee, could you hurry up a little bit? You know, this guy's got delusions of grandeur. What, what we're looking at here is, is our response to Jesus' teaching. But not only that, it's about our response to Jesus. Who is this guy? We need to be asking ourselves that. Because if he is who he says he is, we really need to do what he said we need to do. C.S. Lewis said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Good words. Good words. What will we do with the sermon? And what will we do with the speaker? Josh McDowell put it this way, that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. Those three options. There are no others. So what do we do with him? He claimed to be God in flesh. If he knew he wasn't God and yet claimed to be, what's that make him? A liar. He deceived people into following him, knowing it would cost them everything and get them nothing. But he gave the greatest moral teaching the world has ever heard. He's no liar. If he thought he was God but wasn't, then he was a nutcase. You'd call me crazy if I tried to convince you that I'm George Washington. What if I tried to convince you that I'm God? Absolutely crazy. But the things Jesus said and did showed that he was really quite sane. 
He was no lunatic. So if he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, that leaves us only the third option. He's the Lord. We need to fall at his feet and worship him. So have you surrendered to him? Have you received the gift of salvation that only he can give? Have you yielded to him control of your life because he's the only one qualified to lead it? Do that today. Don't leave here without it. Some people preach only on the epistles. They're pretty safe. Some people stay away from the gospels. They're a little less safe. And some people will never preach on the Sermon on the Mount because they're convinced it doesn't apply to this age. That this was made for a Jewish audience and it doesn't really apply until the millennium, the millennial kingdom. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is intended for. We need to see that the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely relevant for today. Jesus didn't just give this teaching and say, now just stick this on a shelf somewhere for a couple thousand years. You'll need it one day. This message serves as the basis for Christian ethics. It orients us toward eternity, from the values of the kingdom stated in the Beatitudes to our mission of being salt and light in a dark and decaying world, to how we can actually exceed the law's demands, to the living out of our faith. This provides a countercultural guide for living a Christ-centered life. And because of that, it's worthy of our attention. If you've got a red-letter Bible, you'll notice that all of the words of the Sermon on the Mount are written in red. That means they all come from the lips of Jesus, the Son of the living God. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and reproving and correcting and training in righteousness. But don't you think that that which comes straight from the lips of Jesus would be particularly worthy of our attention? I would encourage you to come back to the Sermon on the Mount again and again and again. Maybe, maybe make a habit of reading it through at least once a month. It, it will only take you about 10 minutes. Ask God to challenge you to live it out because Jesus said the one who lives it out is the wise one. When Jesus finished speaking the Sermon on the Mount, it tells us the, the hearers were astonished. Astonished, that word means to be so amazed as to be practically overwhelmed. It's that good. It's that important. It needs to be that central in our life. So what will we do with it? And what will we do with him? Pray with me, will you? Father, it's been good to look at the Sermon on the Mount be challenged by it. And, and now we face the challenge of what we'll do with it. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be the wise builders who not only heard, 
but who also wanted to do. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well, that you might, through your word, transform our lives and make us more useful to you as you build your kingdom here, one life at a time. May people see in us the wisdom of following Christ and be drawn to follow in his name and for your glory. Amen.